The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to The Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning, I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Mark Siegel, author of And Then I Danced, Traveling the Road to LGBT Equality. Uh, And Then I Danced is a dramatic and inspirational memoir. This is how it's described from one of the world's top leaders of the movement for gay and lesbian equality. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Mark. Good morning, and it's great to be with you. Great to have you here, and obviously perfect timing, LGBT History Month, October. Could be better. What could be better? And you were there, I, I don't, well, you kind of, there, you were there from the beginning, I guess, and this is what it's all about, this whole timeline of, uh, of traveling the road to LGBT equality, which started when? In, uh, when well, it depends on where in the world you want to take a look at it. The actual first gay organization actually began in Berlin, Germany, called the Scientific Humanitarian Committee, and that was headed by a man by the name of Dr. Magnus Hirschfeld. Uh, but in the United States, the, it took a little longer. It didn't start till 1925. And there began in Chicago, Illinois, uh, by a man by the name of Henry Gerber. But we like to age the gay community now from when it became a more militant, uh, more radicalized, more in-your-face organization that no longer pleaded for rights but demanded our equal rights. And that dates from the Stonewall primarily and that first year, 1969 to 70. Okay, 1969 to 70. So let's begin there. I mean, uh, because I think I'm starting out here. I have, uh, uh, you know, having read your book, December 11th, 1973, you did something that was very significant. This is after Stonewall, a couple of years after Stonewall, I guess. Talk to us about that, because uh, you sort of became the, uh, they describe you as the first gay television star. <laughs> well, in a sense, yes, but sometimes not invited. Uh, That's okay. What? Right after Stonewall, I got involved with a group of people, and we helped create Gay Liberation Front. And for the first year from 69 to 70, uh, we did a couple of things that's never been done before. The first thing we wanted to do was define ourselves, who we were as people. Because up to that point, we even accepted the definition that society gave us, which in those days meant that uh, if you looked at religion, we were immoral. If you looked at law enforcement, we were illegal. If you looked at medical and psychiatry, um, we, we were mentally ill. And if you looked at government, we were unemployable. Basically, we were invisible. And the only thing that would change would be that if the world learned who we were and what we were about and learned that we were flesh and blood, their brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, what have you. So uh, that wasn't happening very quickly or quickly enough for me. So I decided to go on a campaign against the networks, TV networks, since they wouldn't allow gay people to be characters on the shows, wouldn't do news items on us. 
Um, we were literally invisible, and therefore the same myths about gay people continued to be stereotyped through society. And my change in that was to disrupt TV shows. And on the night you're talking about, it was the CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite. And in that evening, about 17 minutes into the show, when they came back from a commercial, they were do, Walter Cronkite was doing a story on security procedures for uh, Henry Kissinger, at which point their security slipped up because I slipped be- between Walter Cronkite and the camera and held the sign into the camera lens, which read, Gays Protest CBS Prejudice. Strangely enough, that became the first time on network news uh, that anyone had ever seen a gay person. First time in history. Okay, and so Mark, so what were the repercussions? I mean, first of all, you yeah, the repercussions from CBS. But what about, I mean, you said, you know, 60% of Americans were watching this. So here you are. 60 million people. Yeah. How many? 60 million people. 60 60, oh, 60 million. Remember, there was no Internet then, and there was no cable television. And if you wanted your news, you got it from Walter Cronkite. Right. He was the guru. He was, yeah, that's absolutely true. He was the, he was, he was the news. Okay, so then what was the response after that? I'm trying to go back and remember, because that was Nixon, the Vietnam War, all of that was going on, right? Um, and so 60 million people see you, you... And I, I guess you, you came out, I guess, right? You came out on Walter Cronkite. In a sense, I mean, I was already out of the closet, I'm, but yeah. publicly I became the face of the gay movement uh, in one quick zap. And uh, for about the next year and a half, you know, it, uh, I was on doing the talk show rounds. I was being interviewed. Uh, I was everywhere that anyone could be to get public information about the gay community out. And uh, that was quite an experience. Um, one of which I was glad to give up uh, in a few years. Uh, um, but, uh, Mark, were you ever scared or frightened at that time? I mean, you know, you, you, you know, here you are, now you become a public figure, recognizable, at least in, in uh, some communities. And, like, was there ever a fear that you would be hurt or that your family would be hurt? Um, you know, I, I've you, been asked that several times now. And, and as I think back on it, no, uh, not even with death threats. Uh, I mean, they became sort of a sense of amusement. Uh, I mean, I finally got, I got what I believed was my last death threat about five years ago. And the funny thing about it, it came in the mail, and the gentleman who wrote it actually put his name and address on the envelope. Who was he? Yeah, well, don't say it. <laughs> Just a strange... So, uh, of course, yeah. like, you do what you normally do when you get one of these, if there's any traceable information. You call the police and you give it to them and let them uh, do their work. So they did. They came back and they just said, you have nothing to worry about. Okay. Yeah. Anybody who sent a death threat with their name on it is yeah. a little... Uh, yeah, right. it's suspicious, right. It's... So, but, okay, so that was five years ago, but then, like, going back to, you know, we're talking about the 70s, uh, I would imagine that getting death threats could be frightening, and there was some reality, I mean, that's something to really be fearful of, and also how well do, you know, every, the, the prejudice that existed back then, the police themselves were prejudiced, you know, in terms of who oh, you're absolutely. going to for help. Um, I mean, in, in the numerous arrests I had, most of the time, uh, you were roughed up a little, uh, you were thrown into police wagons, you got the infamous nickel ride to the pl- pl- police station, um, and they weren't very kind, and they didn't say very nice things. But that was part of what I felt, that was part of doing the job. 
What about your support, your own family? Where, where did you come from? How old were you and what, what kind of support were you getting from your own, uh, your friends, obviously, but support from your own family? Had you, how, you know, when did you come out to your own family? Because you said you had already come out before. Well, I, I was very lucky. I, bro- I was brought up um, in a South Philadelphia housing project. We were the only Jewish family in, in that neighborhood. And the good point about that is it taught me discrimination uh, from a very early age. And from the Christians that lived next to us in those days in the 1950s, Jews were the devils. And so therefore, uh, I felt a lot of you know, uh, anti-Semitism aimed at my way. And from my, the rest of our family, we were the lowest leg of the family because we lived in a housing project. So I understood economic oppression. So, uh, but lucky for me, I had this wonderful woman in my life by the name of Fanny Weinstein, my grandmother a little uh, four-foot-seven barrel of energy. Uh, and she was in a very exciting, uh, eccentric character. And she wanted me to learn what the world was really about. And she would take me to movies, shows, museums. Uh, and one time when I was 13, she took me to a civil rights demonstration. So I understood what fighting for rights were all about, because not only did she take me to civil rights demonstrations, she talked about how our family had to come to the United States because of the pogroms in Eastern Europe and Russia. She talked about uh, how women had to fight for the right to vote because she was a suffragette. Then she took me to a civil rights demonstration. So I think I was already primed to the extent when I was standing outside the Stonewall in 1969 and the Stonewall riot broke out. And as I witnessed that, I said to myself very simply, you know, women can fight for rights, blacks can fight for, for rights, Latinos can fight for rights. Why can't we? And so in my head, that was the day that I became a gay activist. Well, you had, I mean, you're talking about this lovely grandmother, Fanny Weinstein. Uh, I mean, you, and boy, when I hear that, it's, it's almost, and she's a suffragette, like, I wonder if you didn't have that kind of support, maybe none of this would ever have happened. I mean... Oh, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I am the result of my family and gay liberation front. I think those are the two most important influences of my life. What do you think, Mark, are the differences? Okay, we can, you know, I guess, fast forward, what, 40 years? Um, I don't want to skip the middle. Maybe we'll go back to some of it. But, okay, 1970s, now, 2016, 2015, um, obviously, Legally, we've come a long way. Um, that's obvious. Absolutely. So, and let's talk about attitudes, though, because I'm a social worker, and uh, you know, I, I mean, I'm very curious about your response to how do you think people's attitudes have changed? I mean, they have changed, but to what degree? What, what, talk to us about that. Well, it depends on what part of the nation or what part of the world you live in. Um, in most of the Western world at this point, attitudes are, oh, I really don't care, um, to, oh, I really support their rights. And there's just a few people who go, okay, just let, the, let those people alone. I don't need to associate with them. That's basically the three kinds are. But if you look in uh, Africa or uh, some Islamic countries, uh, they believe in killing gay people. So it depends on where in the world you want to you know, really uh, take a look at. I mean, in most of Western Europe at this point, um, there's uh, equal rights to full extent, including marriage equality. Um, That's happening in the United States right now and through Latin America. Uh, The only places it's not happening at this point to any great extent is Asia, uh, Africa, uh, and some of the Islamic countries. Yeah. Well, but, 
you know, women were given the right to vote in, what, 1923 or thereabouts, 1924, and women still don't really have equal rights. So even though, you know, you can pass the law, but what is it, cultural lag, you know, attitudes towards women, we've never had a woman president, for instance, so... Well, we might wait a year or so. We might, hopefully, but, you know, we don't know. But this would be, okay, this is our, this is 1923, now it's 20... 15, so that's a long time in, in terms of when we were granted our civil rights. Um, well, you can you also know. look at African Americans and say, oh, they were granted, you know, out of slavery in 1865, and it took till 19 <laughs> for them to get a black president. Exactly. So, so that's you know, what, yeah. attitude, changing attitudes is more difficult than changing law. Mm-hmm. How do we change those attitudes? What do you think you now keep, works in terms of, I mean, like at night, when you did it in 73, you really had to be out there. You had to, I mean, you did it, you know, a placard, uh, you know, on television. You jump out in front of Walter Cronkite. But I think today, do you think the tactics have to be different? How do you change people's attitudes? I mean, I'm sitting here in New York City. It doesn't seem, to, it's not the same kind of issue I, it is. I think in, you need to be creative and you need to learn how to politic. And I don't think most of my community, and I blame this primarily on the leaders of my own community, know how to do that. Um, and it's one of, the, one of the reasons I wrote the book was to use Philadelphia as an example. Philadelphia now is literally considered the nation's most LGBT-friendly uh, city, more friendly than San Francisco, New York, Washington, D.C. Um, we have so many successes to talk about. Uh, our, we have a mayor's uh, race, uh, which will end in about two weeks. Uh, the Democratic nominee will probably win overwhelmingly. Uh, and he based his campaign on his support in the gay community. I don't know any other mayor's race in America where that kind of thing happens. Um, and the rest of the city support that. Uh, I, I am so proud of this man's name is Jim Kenny. I am so proud of that man um, because I've worked with him now for going on 25 years. And what do you that's think the kind of building of relationships that I don't see LGBT communities in other cities building. Right, let's take Long-term New York. Long-term relationships. Building relationships. Poli- um, political, social, corporate, economic, along every single line. There's not a, in, in Philadelphia, there's not a profession where the, the LGBT community is not involved. There isn't a governmental position where the LGBT community is not involved on some level. We're involved in every form of social activity. Um, we, ha- we help with, with tourism. We help with infrastructure. Um, it's, it's a partnership, and the city, therefore, the, the, the populace of the city has learned to accept the gay community as just their neighbors. Well, how are we not doing it in New York City? You mentioned New York City and San Francisco, which, uh, you know, before you mentioned Philadelphia, is being, I'm saying, the most, uh, I'm using the word gay-friendly. Um, I would have thought it would have been New York or San Francisco. So what, what is New York? Most people do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, what, well, yeah. I think that, that for the most part, those cities are ghettoized. I think they fight with inside their communities but don't leave their communities and work with the outside parts of the city. I think they only go to their city when they want something for their community. On the other hand, what we do in Philadelphia is uh, we work with other organizations to help them in to benefit them, not just the LGBT community. It's a two-way street. 
Yeah. I think there's a different attitude. Let's say, I mean, I've noticed my young friends, um, I'm very involved in the Pride Center in Albany, New York, which is the longest running Pride Center in the country, and uh, received. How many years my, is it? I'm way back. I, I'm not sure, but it's it, you have longest running one. Can you know continually in running. the same building? Yes. Yeah. yeah right. Exactly. Um, and I uh, have to say, I received the Straight But Not Narrow Award last year, which is a huge award. Congratulations! And thank you very much. Um, but we would be nowhere if we did not have our uh, LGBT allies. Yeah, and um, I think that's a critical issue. And when I work with, you know, I have my friends on the board and everything, that's a big issue. Like, yes, you really have to include the allies. And, and I think two or three years ago, that wasn't done. You know, the, the assumption was that wasn't going to make any difference. I said, you know, you, might, you, have, you have women and men and couples and single people out in the community, like you said, brothers, sisters, children who are gay, they're there for you, but you are not reaching out to them. And so I think that's one of the objectives, at least, of the Pride Center in Albany, which I think is what you're talking about, building those relationships. Exactly. And also getting money from them for projects. <laughs> well, the, the money for projects is important for one very simple reason. Uh, like any community, we pay our taxes, and therefore our community should be protected and funded like any other community. It's called equality. Yeah. I, I think there's also a difference in attitude in the younger uh, younger people, because they sometimes don't necessarily feel like they have to build those relationships. Hey, we're here. This is it. You accept me, or you know, it's it's not my problem. Exactly. Absolutely. And one of the reasons we did that was because one one of the reasons the cover of my book is the picture has on it, which is very unusual than almost any other uh, uh, books is because I wanted to show young LGBT people what we had to do to get to where we are today. Because they, they literally were born and they had uh, uh, not, you know, some form of rights. People were talking about gay people. They, they had places to look and understand who they were. Well, when I was younger, we didn't have that. We had to fight to get those rights. And so the picture on the cover of the book is a picture of me being arrested in, I believe, 1975. Yeah, history. I think we all need to know our history, and of course I think that is kind of missing in our whole American culture, whatever our history is. We don't talk about history. We talk about now. It's always everything in the moment. Um, can I switch a little bit? Because I think this, sure. this, um, uh, this housing project that you've been involved in uh, is, is uh, something that really needs to be talked about. $19.5 million John C. Anderson Apartments, LG. BT friendly affordable housing facility for low for income seniors. seniors. Yes, uh, and you won the AIA Architectural Award um, in 2015. Now you know everybody. We're all aging, so uh, this is so critical. Um, and when so, let's, tell us about that project because I, I think that's well, obviously got, yeah. It got started by me witnessing that a lot of my friends from that time period of 1969-70 were getting very old. And a lot of them, because they were out at that time period, didn't have the two things that senior people need to have a decent retirement, which was um, family support. A lot of them had lost their family. If you came out in the late 1950s and early 1960s, a lot of times you were disowned by your family. It was not a popular thing to do. And the other thing being is 
that if you were out, you couldn't get a good job that gave you a 401k. Chances are you would be fired. Uh, you got to remember at the time, if you couldn't be a doctor, you couldn't be a lawyer, bar associations wouldn't pass you. You couldn't get a medical degree. I mean, it was sort of amazing, and people forget that period of time. Um, so, therefore, you couldn't usually get a job with a good 401k. So, those people are now retiring. They're our first out generation. And what's happening to them is they don't have the money to live in a decent neighborhood. They don't have the money to live in a decent place, period. They um, are being forced out of the community that they built. And, you know, I've looked around, I've noticed other communities take care of their senior with affordable senior buildings, and I wanted to know how they did it, and I investigated and looked at, in, into it and figured, well, if other communities, if the Catholic community could do it, if the Jewish community could do it, if the African-American community could do it, why can't we? Um, so I set up an organization, and we went about doing it, and we went about creating it exactly as the Catholics, the Jews, the blacks, um, and all we asked for was full equality. If we could do the work properly the way they did the work, we should be granted the same, same funding, licensing, and what have you. And we did it. Mark, but if it's LGBT-friendly, does that mean do you have to be gay to be in it? I mean, like the no. Jewish home for the aged? You know, or, you of know, all stuff people, like- we're the, the, the least group that should ever discriminate against anybody. And that's why the term LGBT-friendly is used. And what we mean by that is, is that it primarily is being built for LGBT people, but it's not exclusive. And what it is, is it means that people who are LGBT can feel like they will be treated with dignity in the building. I mean, I can give you examples of how other LGBT people are treated in non-LGBT-friendly buildings. And I could tell you about some of our residents who lived in other buildings where the staff of the building would circle around them in the community room and try to pray the gay out of them. I could tell you how a lesbian couple was refused to have meetings in their, her, their own apartment when they lived in another senior affordable building. I mean, there's a lot of discrimination amongst our seniors, and they're very vulnerable people, uh, and they can't fight back. Um, so we needed desperately to build a building where they could live in dignity and not be preached at, not be restricted. Um, it's just horrible. One of, one of the great stories I love to tell is about a woman who lives in our building who's not gay. Um, she moved to the building because her son is gay. And in the previous building that she had lived in, which was a, uh, I can't, I don't want to uh, say the religious organization that ran it, uh, but they forbid her from talking about her son because her son was gay. Now, every mother wants to brag about their son and say how great they love their son. Yes. Well, I can think of I mean, other uh, indications. discrimination. But yeah. the woman is so happy now living in an LGBT-friendly building. Well, I can, another example, if her son is gay and he has a partner or a husband, um, that would make it very, I mean, it would be very uncomfortable. uncomfortable if you, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so there are lots of, and I think that the straight community sometimes doesn't understand all the kind of, those kinds of situations that can occur, I guess, and um, are not really familiar with that in terms of, like, you're talking about the living situations, well, in this case, uh, living situation for seniors. Give us some more examples, because I think the public really needs to know about that and why it really is important to have LGBT-friendly affordable housing, say, for seniors. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we have a whole host of projects um, that, that, that are specifically geared towards 
uh, LGBT seniors. Uh, basically, we have a legal clinic. Uh, we have a health clinic. Uh, we have um, uh, programs that specifically take LGBT seniors out to places that they're going to have interest in. They go on museum trips, almost like any other senior building, but only they get to socialize with other LGBT people. And one of the most remarkable things about this building is how much they've gotten involved in their community. We, uh, the building is 56 units. There are 60-some people who live there. And what's been fascinating is to watch them do volunteer work in the neighborhood. Um, they've become a major asset to the community. I would imagine they would also, you know, they pair seniors, you know, in, in certain communities, um, in certain nursing home assisted living facilities, they pair those seniors with uh, young people. Young people come in and they, you know, spend the day together and, and uh, uh, so the young can sort of appreciate the old and vice versa. I mean, it would seem to me that would be something that could be done also with other young, uh, you know, gay students, gay kids to come in and, and to... You know, you know, be part of, of this. Uh, we've, cr- we've created yeah. an inter, uh, intergenerational dialogue program where the gay youth organization, which in Philadelphia is called The Attic, comes in and into the community room, and we actually have sessions where it's sort of like adopt a grandparent. Uh, so they're le- And one of the fun aspects, it seems everybody in Philadelphia, when I say Philadelphia is an LGBT-friendly city, goes over the top. We have something called the Mural Arts Program in Philadelphia, and they wanted to be involved in the building to some extent. It seems that in Philadelphia, this building has become very popular, and people want to get involved. So the Mural Arts Program decided to do a mural program, which encompasses the intergenerational program between young gay people and senior gay people. And that ended up on billboards around Philadelphia, thanks to a company called Clear Channel. So you are well, you, you are the spokesperson for Philadelphia, I must say. <laughs> well, I love my city. Uh, I'm a Philadelphia chauvinist. I think it's the greatest city in, in the world. <laughs> but now, uh, you, uh, just before the show, you told me now you're up, you're up in Boston, uh, I guess, uh, promoting your book, uh, Harvard Absolutely. Square. Yeah. And, and so uh, we what kind of response? Yeah, class, I would imagine so. you get a good response at, uh, in, in Harvard Square, or in Harvard anyway, in uh, Cambridge. Um, well, so, well, Harvard yeah. last night had two big stars uh, in two different bookstores. Um, they had uh, Bob Woodward in one, and then, of course, they had me in the other. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good combination. They're both pushing their books. I think he had a bigger crowd than I had. Yeah, well, but, hey, that's pretty good. I think that's terrific. So where are you going next? You're coming back to Philly, coming back to New York uh, City? Tonight, I'll be, tonight I will be in uh, Collingswood, New Jersey, at New Jersey Celebrates. Tomorrow I will be at the Sugar House Casino that is in Philadelphia. Um, and then I get a break for a couple of days, and then we're off again next week. Okay. Well, uh, Mark, we have a couple minutes left, Mark. So websites, I mean, I want to mention the book again, And Then I Dance, Traveling the Road to LGBT Equality, Mark Siegel. But websites that we can go to that will tell us more about the book, about you, or what you're doing, or any suggestions for us, or just more information about this, you know, all your projects. My newspaper, which is Philadelphia Gay News, that's Philadelphia Gay News, has its website at www.e, like an electronic, p as in Philadelphia, g as in gay, n as in news, so it's www.epgn.com. 
and that's uh, my newspaper site that will give you a lot of gay news and information. Uh, you can look up LGBT on your uh, web browser, and you will get thousands of sites that will give you news and features and information. Uh, if you do LGBT and then put a comma and put your city in there or your country, uh, you'll get information in that regard. Great. It's great talking to you this morning, and uh, loved having you on the show. And then I dance, traveling the road to LGBT equality. You can buy it online, <clears throat> online bookstores everywhere. Mark Siegel, thank you. Thank you. Have a good day, everybody. Yep. We're going to take a short break right now. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. And you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. There are over 140 million products manufactured worldwide. It is impossible to know the ingredients in these products, especially those made overseas. Stan Salat, creator of the HSF Mark and the Counterfeit Mark Alliance, is the host of People to People, working together for your safety. Stan believes in our right to know the type and amount of hazardous materials in consumer products and whether they are counterfeit. Find out how you can protect yourself every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is a retired Navy SEAL, Clint Emerson, author of 100 Deadly Skills, The SEAL Operative's Guide to Eluding Pursuers, Evading Capture, and Surviving Any Dangerous Situation. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Clint. Hi, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. Okay, so you were part of the SEAL Team 6, Navy SEAL. Uh, you were operating globally uh, for, what, 20 years, um, working in highly, obviously, I would imagine, dangerous situations, working with small teams, sometimes striking out alone. So this book apparently is inspired by all those experiences. You're going to help us to be able to, not exactly, I don't think we can protect ourselves in the same way you do as a Navy SEAL, but Give us some, I guess, uh, assistance in, in this kind of dangerous world we live in today, unfortunately. Yeah, the book was uh, really designed to give its readers uh, 
allow them to take more control of their personal security. Um, teach them how to decrease their exposure to, you know, different threats and not become, you know, a statistic. And uh, and then give them some great skills that uh, if they find themselves in crisis, that they can get out successfully and survive. And um, you know, I've been asked, you know, are these Navy SEAL skills? And the answer really is they're not. They are skills that, you know, one one fortunate thing about our community is it allows uh, uh, an individual to be creative and uh, and to harness creativity and adaptability and all that good stuff. So. A lot of these skills are things that I had to either adapt or uh, get creative um, in order to ensure my own personal security. Um, if you were to have another SEAL write another hundred deadly skills, they'd probably be uh, you know a hundred different ones um, because each one of our experiences through our careers, you know, uh, is, even though we're doing the same job, um, how you experience a particular. Uh, operation or event is, is always viewed differently, and you know, and you adapt to it differently, and you think about it differently. So, um, the skills are good for anyone. You know, whether you're a, you know, a housewife or a, a business guy who uh, travels abroad. And uh, so, I, I, I tried to bring a, a well-rounded group of skills together that anyone could uh, utilize and enjoy. Yeah, and I think that's what's unique about your book because when uh, you know I was sitting around talking, unfortunately and sadly, after all of these killings, whether in Oregon or the schools or in movie theaters or on this recent on the train in France, like you know, part of our conversation now is, well, what would you do? How would you handle it? What could you do? And I think that some of us think, well, there must be some, you know, one thing that you do or that you should do. Is there any kind of a training one should have? But what you're saying, that's not true. You have to be creative in that situation. But we have, let's talk about the skills that you're you describe in your book and really apply them to the situations. Let's take the, because I'm thinking, uh, my my newly acquired daughter-in-law is a teacher, and uh, you know I looked at her and I thought, well, you know they're proposing that maybe teachers should have guns, and I look at her. I mean, there's really no way she could use a gun or do it well. But what would she do in a classroom, or what would I do on a train? I take the train all the time. Those are two examples. Um, you know, I've I've never ever been involved in combat, or you know, I'm just a ordinary middle-aged citizen, you know, not very physically fit in that way, what do you do? Um, well, I, I, I believe in keeping things simple, first off. I think if you, uh, you, get, you make things too complicated, uh, they won't work under stress. So, um, so having simple tools and simple um, mental processes that you can leverage under stress, I think, is key. So the one that uh, the mental checkoff list that I'm, I'm pushing regularly these days because of all of these uh, lone wolf attacks and active shooting um, is the run, hide, fight philosophy, which is one of the skills in, in the book. And um, you should always be looking for the exit. You know, this is no crisis. Nothing's, there's no bad guys standing in front of you. There's no gunshots. There's no smell of fire. Um, none of your senses are actually being activated. It's just, where would I run right now? And asking yourself that question. Okay, where would I hide right now? Um, and if I hide, what items in the room or wherever I'm at can I hide behind that stop bullets? And then finally, fight, right? Run, hide, fight. Okay, 
if I'm going to fight, what can I use right now in my room that could help me in a fight? Is there a fire extinguisher? Is there, you know, a roll of coins that I can, you know, grip in my hand and make my fist more dense? Is there a baseball bat? Um, so it's really a simple checkoff list, but it forces you to ask questions that, you know, without even knowing it, you're basically coming up with plans all the time of what you would do. So, so run, you're saying, hide, Clint, anytime you're in public, you're saying anytime you're in public, and I sort of started to do that. I go into the movie theater, for instance, now, and it's sort of it's what you're saying. I do look. Okay, there's the exit. Uh, would I, you know, crouch under the seat if somebody came after me? The run, hide, and looking around to see how I could get out of here is a simple, not simple, but that's being aware of my surroundings would be the easiest. The fighting would be the most difficult for one who has never fought before. You know, what, look in my pocketbook and find a pen or something or a lipstick or something that you could poke in somebody's eye? I mean, I, is that the kind of thing that we should be doing? Um, I, one, I would hope that there's a man nearby that's uh, man enough to protect you. That would be first. But, yes, I believe women should also have the ability to defend themselves, especially if they find themselves alone. Um, and you nailed it. I mean, I have a, a skill in there talking about how to use a pen, um, you know, as a weapon, um, especially if you take the time to go, you know, shop it around a little bit and buy a steel-barreled pen. Um uh, these are, you're going to pay a little, they're still considered a consumable, you know, uh, a pen that, you know, you throw away because it runs out of ink. But it's, uh, they're, they're a couple of bucks more, but they're, one, they're basically a steel spike, and uh, they effectively can punch through plywood. So why not have that on you? Why not make that part of your checkbook or whatever you use or whatever you have in your purse or whatever you carry on you um, so that you can leverage it just in case? Um, and, uh, yeah, poking the bad guy's eyeball out is a great start. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a big talker. I'm not so sure I could do that. But what do you do on a train? I mean, you're sitting you're, – I mean, I take the train all the time, um, as do many New Yorkers, for instance. So we are, or you're sitting on a subway, and there is no way out. I mean, you – Yeah. There is yeah. – These are difficult, like classrooms uh, in a multi-level structure, you know, like, you know – you know, any any university in, in downtown, you know, New, in New York or Manhattan, I mean, you know, it's uh, it's all vertical. So, yeah, jumping out the window probably isn't a good idea. Um, there's no place to, to run. There's no real good place to hide. So, you know, when it comes down to the fight on a train or in any confined space, um, you know, you want to team up. Uh, the guys over in Europe, you know, they did it right. Um the first piece was the American professor that saw the guy go into a bathroom. He looked odd. He stayed in there for an extended period of time, and he came out um, ready to start shooting people. Uh, you know, awareness is key so that you can detect it early. Um, and then, obviously, if you have to fight, fight as a team um, and disseminate responsibilities accordingly, right? The, the primary objective is to get control of the weapon. Um, so someone's going to, that's their job. You're the weapon person. Go after the weapon. Someone's going to go for his head. Um, if you control the head, and this is from, you know, the fighting world, if you control the head, then you can control the body. Um, and then, obviously, someone's going to attack the balance aspect, right, his legs, try to get him onto the ground. Um, you know, three people, 
would it would be make for the perfect team. If you can team up with others, then you should. Um, someone in your position who you know may not feel like they'd win the fight or don't have the capability or skills, then you could be the coach. You could be the person saying, "Hey, big guy, why don't you do this? Hey, why don't you do that?" Um, you know, some people need uh, a little bit of a kick in the butt in order to uh, make the make the right moves. Um, I think a lot of people see gun and they think it's oh, it's over, it's done. There's nothing I can do. But you have to think about it from the from the shooter's point of view. It's his first time to do this. He is a nervous wreck. Whether it seems that way or not, uh, his shots will not be accurate unless you just stand there still and allow yourself to be executed, which, you know, I don't recommend. Um, You have to do something. Uh, He is nervous. Uh, He doesn't, uh, it's his first time probably to take human lives. Uh, He's not probably as experienced with those weapons as it may seem. And you have more advantages than you know. And that's, that's probably the point. key that's takeaway. Very, and, you know, that's very reassuring when I hear it from you because I hadn't really thought about it from that perspective. <clears throat> if someone is doing it on a train or he's in a new situation himself, um, this is the first time he's been in that situation. And I, I think the thing you said well, on a plane, I fly a lot too. So the, when they've been able to take down who's ever you know, attempted to... to uh, you know, knife or kill people on a plane. It's always been in a group, as you describe, and uh, usually a group of men who get together and kind of follow what you just described, right? And, and have been able to get the guy either unconscious or, you know, tied to the seat or whatever they do, right? Yeah, exactly. It, it's a team effort, and uh, you know, I think um, more and more Americans, especially, are becoming a little more calibrated, if you will, a little more sensitized that the potential of acts like this could happen anywhere. Um, and, you know, I li- I'd like to believe and I hope, and definitely through um, the book, uh, hopefully get more and more people, uh, you know, on the offense when, when they face certain threats. You know, I, I really don't like the word defense. I think, you know, defense is about one second of your reaction. You know, it's, uh, the rest of it should be offensive. Um, in order to win, you know, you've got to take the aggression uh, equal to or greater than uh, the adversary that's uh, standing in front of you. And if it's a group effort, well, then that's going to ensure success. You know, yeah, you, somebody might get stabbed in the arm. Somebody might actually get shot in the leg. Uh, but it's far better than dying, you know. Yeah. Um, in other words, fight, if fight. you just stand there and don't do anything, you are going to be killed. I mean, I think the mindset, the psychological mindset that one has to get into, as you mentioned, is difficult for Americans because we've never, you know, until after 9-11, we weren't into that mindset. We, you know, didn't live in that kind of a, a country or an atmosphere. So it, it is establishing a mindset that this could even happen, like you said, from the very beginning. You, you really do have to be, you know, in New York, it's see something, say something. But you really do have to, if you see something, say something. And we're kind of used to not doing that. Um, what do you do in a situation like what happened in the Boston Marathon, or can you do anything? Um, that's a difficult one, you know. You got you've got a lot of security. Um, you've got you know obviously layers of security actually, and and technology. And those guys, um, you know, they're able to infiltrate the area, looking like you know, any, looking like you know anyone else, and put backpacks down and walk away. 
um, you know, the awareness piece, you see, uh, you know, it's good in airports. People are all about it in airports, which is the least likely, right? Airports yeah. have all this security, but yet that's where we say, if you see baggage unattended, please report it to, you know, closest attendant or whatever. But the reality is, is, you know, you see baggage sitting alone outside of an airport, you know, in a downtown environment or wherever, that's, that's where you really need to report it because the odds of, you know, the baggage in the airport versus the baggage sitting uh, in Times Square, um, you know, the odds are in Times Square it's something bad. You know, there was a great example of a guy, the, the hot dog vendor, you know, what it was a couple of years ago, he, he saw that, that black uh, SUV had been sitting there. Um, he knew, you know, he had his vending, his spot where he worked every day. He knew his environment and the, the black SUV that had explosives in it. You know, he pointed it out, he told cops, and they ended up resolving, you know, resolving that issue because he was paying attention, you know, and awareness is key. Oh, I think one thing, though, is true. He's the vendor. He's there every day. That is his environment, and he gets a sense or a feel that this isn't quite right, and he's aware. I mean, which is he has an advantage in that sense if he takes advantage of it as to someone. If I'm walking through Times Square and I see a bag, I mean, I, as you say, I wouldn't tend to, like, probably, it, you know, make the police aware that I saw a gym bag, I don't think. But maybe after having this interview with you, I would. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> it won't, it won't, it definitely it never hurts, you know, to err on the side of caution, you know. Uh, yeah, you know, maybe the police don't like it. You know, because, okay, we're, we're getting asked to check, you know, a thousand bags a day. But my guess is, you know, there not too many bags are being left around unattended for extended periods of time. I would hope not, you know, because uh, they, they should be, that should be an alert to a certain degree, um, you know, for in, in certain in certain places, high threat or places that are threatened regularly, you know, um, you know, Times Square definitely is, you know, always, you know, has threats against it, uh, you know, any, any, any area that repre- has great representation of America or in the red, white, and blue, you know, our, our financial areas, you know, our leadership, you know, like D.C., um, you know, New York, of course, you know, these are, these are areas where, you know, census should be probably a little higher because they always make the target list. Uh, you know, I'm thinking about the uh, in 9/11, and I think I think this you know this was on the news quite frequently after the the flight that left Boston. There were weren't there one or two businessmen who take the who would take that particular flight every week, and so they knew their environment, and they actually were sitting around waiting for the to be caught, you know to get on the plane, and they didn't feel comfortable. There was one man, I guess, who didn't feel comfortable, and he left, and he he didn't go in the, you know that was one of the planes that was involved in 911 um because he was aware of his surroundings and he didn't he realized that this just didn't feel right which is what you were describing before yeah and that is amazing you know and um we all we're all creatures of habit you know and in the in the the thing that we have to fight the most is complacency um, you know, we, we get in our cars or we, we, we walk to our, the metro or the bus or wherever, however we commute, we commute and we do it almost blindly. And, uh, and then we get off and then we go to work and then we do the same thing in reverse. Um, the goal is, is start paying attention. And if everyone were paying attention to their routes that they did every day, 
like those business guys, um, then all of a sudden we would uh, we'd be eluding all kinds of threats and crises, or potentially, um, or at least being you know sensors. You know, we all need to be you know kind of like human sensors in our environments, and you know always look, listen, and feel. And if there's something wrong, you know, report it. How about this? Can you take it from the opposite? Like I'm thinking you're a Navy SEAL and I'm sitting on the train and I see somebody who looks like a Navy SEAL. Maybe I be, this is somebody I'm going to go to. I have to plan ahead. Like this is going to be my ally. Not necessarily I'm also looking for the enemy, but maybe I all have to sit around and think who would be my ally in this situation. Oh yeah, I uh, yeah. Well, first, I think it all defines on how do you what do you think a Navy SEAL looks like? <laughs> but um, you know, we well, come in all makes and models, armor so. and ready to go. I guess I don't. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, if they're like I said, you know, the guys, you know, you know, American men definitely should be. Uh, I don't care what you do for a living. If uh, if there's threats, you should be standing up and facing it. And, uh, you know, that might not seem realistic or whatever in today's environment when we're saying you can't play tag and you get concussions if you play football. But, you know, yes, these are true. You get injured. Um, but when you're talking about life and death, hey, get up and do something and uh, especially do the right thing as a, as a, as a man. You know, it's a, you know, I come from a very barbaric man's world, so, you know, uh, for me, it's easy. You know, for other yeah. guys, I think uh, they need uh, some of the knowledge and the skills in the book in order to have the confidence to do that, to do things like that. And that's that's one of the you know kind of the the goals behind the book as well. Yeah. Well, these confidence. You have to have the psyche. You have to have the confidence to be able to to do it. And I, absolutely. And um, that's why people have to read the book. But you talked. You just mentioned a barbaric world of Navy SEALs. Tell us a little bit about, can, how much can you tell us, but whatever you can, tell us about that. How did you get into it? How did you, uh, you know, this is a world of danger that, you know, really dangerous situations that most of us will never be familiar with. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I started, uh, well, I grew up overseas. I grew up in Saudi Arabia, so um, uh, from the second grade to high school, so I was uh, entrenched in um, probably the most extreme versions of Islam that you could be, uh, you know, exposed to. And as a kid, um, I grew up kind of seeing the culture, seeing the religion, and, uh, you know, uh, unfortunately, uh, in their environment, in their world, you follow their rules, and I saw how my mom was treated, how my dad was treated, and, uh, you know, I had a certain distaste that kind of started from a young age. But, um, you know, as an adult now, of course, I see it. Hey, it's their country. They run things however they want. And um, the adult version, obviously, is, hey, you know, to each his own. There's nothing, you know, that's just how they are, you know, uh, and it's, uh, it's how they operate. And, uh, and, and that, that it is what it is. But um, I, you know, I get asked that so much that I relate it to today's events, right? So here I am, a kid that grows up in that environment and uh, saw my parents, you know, mistreated from time to time and, and, and me as well. And as a kid, you mumble things on you. Oh, I'm going to come back and do whatever to these people someday. Um, but it's interesting how that passion, that little, that little seed uh, is stuck in you, um, especially for Americans where we ha- I had all these other opportunities um, but I continued down the same path, um, and I, I met my first Na- Navy SEAL when I was probably 10 years old in an airport, and, uh, you know, I asked him, a, I was a curious kid, I asked him a bunch of questions, he gave me a bunch of great answers that, 
you know, about what he did and cool missions he went on. And I was like, yeah, that's what I want to do when I grow up. So, of course, I uh, I uh, ended up uh, kind of fulfilling that dream. Um, so when I get asked about, you know, what do you think about terrorism and where it's going, I always relate it to my personal life, to my personal experiences growing up as a child in a very radical Muslim state. And, uh, and then you bring, and then you flip that around on its head. Now, here I am, uh, you know, a SEAL inside Iraq, inside Afghanistan, and I see 10-year-old kids looking at me. And it dawned on me, I was like, you know what? They're looking at me the same way that I probably looked at Saudi men. And that little seed planted immediately. And I was like, you know, we have, (laughs) you know, unfortunately, we go over to do the right things. But now you have hundreds of thousands of kids that, uh, you know, we may have put some seeds in where they go, hey, you know, I want to grow up and kill these people someday. Um and it's an interesting, uh, you know, reality that I, that I kind of, that I kind of had. And now I look at it, I'm like, wow, you know, we may, you know, you kick a beehive, you're going to get bees. <laughs> so, yeah. um, and, and these are kids that, that all they have is religion and they really don't have a whole lot of opportunities. So, um, you know, it's, uh, it's a little doomy, but, you know, terrorism is, uh, is probably not going away anytime soon. Uh, you know that's that is that's a kind of a sounds like an unsolvable conundrum kind of i mean you, you so i mean unfortunately as you say um terrorism you you think it's here to stay this is kind of a way of life because of well that's a whole other discussion i guess because of our global community et cetera right i mean we have about four minutes left, so I just want to ask you when you work encounter different kinds of situations as a Navy SEAL. I mean, are you terrified every time you had to go in and do what you had to do, which is, or do you get into a mindset that makes it so that you aren't terrified or fearful? I mean, what's the psychology? What happens to you? Um, you know, I, I, I don't think you'll, you'll run into uh, any soldier these days that have had to go into combat and they're all there's fear there and uh but the beauty of it is that fear is what also keeps you driving forward um with aggression uh and as long as you don't let the fear really uh take over uh because usually when fear takes over you inevitably you'll make a mistake and that can be life-threatening but um you know the uh, the fascinating dynamic to the whole thing is when you have a group of guys that know how to control that fear and use the aggression, all of a sudden, as a group, you are fearless and you are uh, uh, an incredible, um, well-tuned weapon that can get the job done in a timely manner and uh, do it you know, efficiently, effectively, and accurately, and then, uh, and then move on. And uh, the more and more experience you rack up um, doing that, uh, then, you know, all of a sudden you find yourself operating at a level that uh, is uh, remarkable. And it, it, but it's a, it, but it's a, it's a team effort. It's a group effort. Um, no one guy is uh, doing it all. And, but it's amazing, you know, when you have like-minded individuals getting together, you know, you can accomplish just about anything. 
So survival can depend on the team, and it, it reminds me of uh, when you read stories about the Holocaust and people who survived the concentration camps from the Nazis. They, many of them who were able to do that were ones who either had a brother or a sister with them. They teamed up. Either they had a family member, and it was, and that's what helped them to survive psychologically, physically, you know, just kind of as you're describing it. Um, it, it, it's the same kind of mentality, I guess. You know, you can do stuff as a team yeah. that you can't do as an yeah, individual. Yeah, I would agree. It's it's uh, how do you keep the motivation going and stay positive even when uh, you know times are tough and uh, just drive forward. You got you have to visualize you know the goalpost. How am I getting there? How am I getting to that to the end? Um, and make it happen. Great. Well, it's been great having you on the show today. Uh, great guest, retired Navy SEAL Clint Emerson. His book is 100 Deadly Skills, The SEAL Operative's Guide to Eluding Pursuers, Evading Capture, and Surviving Any Dangerous Situation. We learned so much from you today. Thank you, Clint. Hey, thank you, and uh, thanks for having me. Great. We are going to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. And you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.CatherineZox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. 